section five of invention and discovery by anonymous this librivox recording is in the public domain catching electric eels humboldt gives a very interesting narrative of the mode of the capture of gymnoti employed by the indians of south america this is done by rousing the eels by driving horses and mules into the ponds which those fish inhabit and harpooning them when they have exhausted their electricity upon the unhappy quadrupeds Quote, i wished says humboldt that a clever artist could have depicted the most animated period of the attack the groups of indians surrounding the pond the horses with their manes erect and eyeballs wild with pain and fright striving to escape from the electric storm which they have aroused and driven back by the shouts and long whips of the excited indians the livid yellow eels like great water snakes swimming near the surface and pursuing their enemy all these objects presented a most picturesque and exciting ensemble in less than five minutes two horses were killed the eel being more than five feet in length glides beneath the body of the horse and discharges the whole strength of its electric organ it attacks at the same time the heart the digestive viscera and above all the gastric plexus of nerves i thought the scene would have had a tragic termination and expected to see most of the quadrupeds killed but the indians assured me that the fishing would soon be finished and that only the first attack of the gymnoti was really formidable in fact after the conflict had lasted a quarter of an hour the mules and horses appeared less alarmed they no longer erected their manes and their eyes expressed less pain and terror one no longer saw them struck down in the water the eels instead of swimming to the attack retreated from their assailants and approached the shore the indians now began to use their missiles and by means of the long cord attached to the harpoon jerked the fish out of the water without receiving any shock so long as the cord was dry all the circumstances narrated by humboldt established the close analogy between the gymnotus and torpedo in the vital phenomenon attending the exercise of their extraordinary means of offence the exercise is voluntary and exhaustive of the nervous energy and like voluntary muscular effort it needs repose and nourishment to produce a fresh accumulation sir william herschel's first telescope sir william herschel arrived in england from hanover his birthplace about the end of the year seventeen fifty nine when he was in his twenty-first year he was bred a professor of music and went to live at halifax where he acquired by his own application a considerable knowledge of mathematics and having studied astronomy and optics in the popular writings of ferguson he was anxious to witness with his own eyes the wonders of the planetary system he accordingly borrowed of a friend a telescope two feet in focal length and having directed it to the heavens he was so delighted with the actual sight of phenomena which he had previously known only from books that he commissioned a friend to purchase for him in london a telescope with a high magnifying power fortunately for science the price of such an instrument greatly exceeded his means and he immediately resolved to construct a telescope with his own hands after encountering the difficulties which every amateur at first experiences in the casting grinding and polishing of metallic specula for reflecting telescopes 
he completed in seventeen seventy six a reflecting instrument five feet in focal length with which he was able to observe the ring of saturn and the satellites and belts of jupiter this telescope was completed when he resided at bath where he acquired by degrees and in his leisure hours that practical knowledge of optics and mechanics which was necessary for such a task his experience in this scientific art was of the most remarkable kind and by seventeen eighty one he had constructed so many telescopes as to be better furnished with the means of surveying the heavens than were possessed by any other astronomer in either of the fixed observatories in europe wonders of australia sidney smith has thus sketched a few of the natural wonders of this new world Quote, in this remote part of the earth nature having made horses oxen ducks geese oaks elms and all regular and useful productions for the rest of the world seems determined to have a bit of play and to amuse herself as she pleases accordingly she makes cherries with the stone outside and a monstrous animal as tall as a grenadier with the head of a rabbit a tail as big as a bedpost hopping along at the rate of five hops to a mile with three or four young kangaroos looking out of its false uterus to see what is passing then comes a quadruped as big as a large cat with the eyes colour and skin of a mole and the bill and web feet of a duck puzzling dr shaw and rendering the latter half of his life miserable from his utter inability to determine whether it was a bird or a beast add to this a parrot with the legs of a seagull a skate with the head of a shark and a bird of such monstrous dimensions that a side-bone of it will dine three real carnivorous englishmen together with many other productions that on the discovery of the country agitated sir joseph banks and filled him with emotions of distress and delight vicissitudes of mining humboldt relates of a frenchman joseph laborde that he went to mexico very poor in seventeen forty three and acquired a large fortune in a very short time by the mine of la cañada after building a church at tasco which cost him eighty four thousand pounds he was reduced to the lowest poverty by the rapid decline of those very mines from which he had annually drawn from a hundred and thirty thousand to a hundred and ninety thousand pounds weight of silver with a sum of twenty thousand pounds raised by selling a sum of solid gold which in his prosperity he had presented to the church and which he was allowed by the archbishop to withdraw he undertook to clear out an old mine in doing which he lost the greatest part of the produce of this golden sun and then abandoned the work with the small sum remaining he once more ventured on another undertaking which was for a short time highly productive and he left behind him at his death a fortune of a hundred and twenty thousand pounds tropical delights what a ludicrous picture has sidney smith drawn of the animal annoyance of tropical climates Quote, insects he says are their curse the bete rouge lays the foundation of a tremendous ulcer in a moment you are covered with ticks chigos bury themselves in your flesh and hatch a large colony of young chigos in a few hours they will not live together but every chigo sets up a separate ulcer and has his own private portion of pus flies get into your mouth into your eyes into your nose 
you eat flies drink flies and breathe flies lizards cockroaches and snakes get into your bed ants eat up the books scorpions sting you on the foot everything bites stings or bruises every second of your existence you are wounded by some piece of animal life that nobody has ever seen before except samardam and marion an insect with eleven legs is swimming in your teacup a nondescript with nine wings is struggling in the small beer or a caterpillar with several dozen of eyes in his belly is hastening over the bread and butter all nature is alive and seems to be gathering all her entomological hosts to eat you up as you are standing out of your coat waistcoat and breeches such are the tropics all this reconciles us to our dews fogs vapours and drizzle to our apothecaries rushing about with gargles and tinctures to our old british constitutional coughs sore throats and swelled faces End quote. invention of the diving bell in the united states of america generally and to some extent in england the invention of the diving bell has been attributed to sir william phipps who was however one of the first persons who used the bell advantageously in recovering nearly three hundred thousand pounds treasure from a spanish wreck near the bahamas the invention or the earliest use of the diving bell dates from upwards of a century before the birth of phipps the first instance of its use being at cadiz in the presence of charles v in fifteen thirty eight whereas phipps was born at permawi in america in sixteen fifty there is likewise another popular error that the mulgrave family of which the present head is the marquis of normanby descended from sir william phipps the founder of the mulgrave family being phipps one of the earliest explorers of the arctic regions experiments with an electric eel in eighteen thirty eight there was brought to london and exhibited at the adelaide gallery in the strand a living specimen of the electric eel or gymnotus being the first received in this country alive within the present century it was fed upon fish and occasionally with bullock's blood and was kept warm by water artificially heated with this eel several interesting experiments were made allowing periods of rest from a week to a month between each set one of these is thus described quote, i was so fortunate says professor owen as to witness the experiments performed by professor faraday on the large gymnotus which was so long preserved at the adelaide gallery in london that the most powerful shocks were received when the one hand grasped the head and the other hand the tail of the gymnotus i had painful experience especially at the wrists the elbow and across the back but our distinguished experimenter showed us that the nearer the hands were together within certain limits the less powerful was the shock he demonstrated by the galvanometer that the direction of the electric current was always from the anterior parts of the animal to the posterior parts and that the person touching the fish with both hands received only the discharge of the parts of the organs included between the points of contact needles were converted into magnets iodine was obtained by polar decomposition of iodide of potassium and availing himself of this test professor faraday showed that any given part of the organ is negative to other parts before it and positive to such as are behind it 
finally heat was evolved and the electric spark obtained End quote. talent and opportunity previous to the year seventeen o six the brass ordnance for the british government was cast at the foundry in moorfields but an accident which occurred there at the above date led to the removal of the foundry to woolwich the circumstances connected with this change are interesting as well as instructive it appears that a great number of persons had assembled to witness the recasting of the cannon taken by the duke of marlborough from the french and there happened to be among them a young german artisan in metal named schalk observing some moisture in the moulds he pointed out to the spectators around him the danger likely to ensue from an explosion of steam when the moulds were filled with the heated metal and at the instigation of his friends this apprehension was conveyed through colonel armstrong major-general of the ordnance to the duke of richmond then in attendance as the head of the department this warning was however disregarded but schalk retired from the spot with as many of the bystanders as he could persuade to accompany him they had not proceeded far before the furnaces were opened and as schalk had foretold a dreadful explosion ensued the water in the moulds was converted into steam which from its expansive force caused a fiery stream of liquid metal to dart out in every direction part of the roof of the building was blown off and the galleries that had been erected for the company were swept to the ground most of the foundrymen were terribly burnt some were killed and many of the spectators were severely injured a few days afterwards in answer to an advertisement in the newspapers schalk waited upon colonel armstrong and was informed by him that the board of ordnance contemplated building a new foundry and had determined from the representations made to them of schalk's ability to offer him the superintendence of its erection and the management of the entire establishment when completed schalk readily accepted the appointment he fixed upon the warren at woolwich as the most eligible site for the new building and the ordnance which were cast here under his direction were highly approved of thus almost by mere chance was the young german appointed to a situation of great trust and emolument which he filled so ably that during the many years he was superintendent of the royal arsenal not a single accident occurred amongst all the dangerous operations of gun-casting he retired after sixty years service to charlton where he died and his tomb may be seen in woolwich churchyard travelling in the himalay mountains the perils of the heights and passes of the himalay are truly frightful at borendo fifteen thousand one hundred and seventy one feet in height one of the safest and most frequented of the passes the guides point out a spot where upwards of twenty persons returning from kunakur with salt a few years since perished at once they were overtaken by a fall of snow when on the other side but they preferred trying the pass to making a circuit of six or seven days journey the wind got up and they were so benumbed with cold by the time they reached the trees that they were unable to strike a light and slept to wake no more the road to ludak is passable in the middle of winter and is never shut by snow but there are frightful accounts of frost on this route as protection against these perils travellers clothe themselves in their journeys with a winter dress which is so heavy that it scarcely seems possible for them to walk 
putty ram a traveller is described as wearing a garment of lambskin called lapka with sleeves the fleecy side was inward and the exterior covered with suklat a kind of warm blanket dyed blue there were trousers of the same long woollen stockings and over them the usual kind of boots the foot part stuffed with two inches of wool and gloves of thick flannel reaching above the elbows in addition to this he had a blanket around his waist another thrown on his shoulders and a shawl wrapped over his cap and a part of his face such he said was the usual garb of a traveller in the winter season adding that he was always accompanied by a mule load of blankets and other lapka all of which were required at night when he was obliged to sleep under the snow gold in siberia the reign of the emperor nicholas has been distinguished by the important discovery that portions of the great eastern regions of siberia are highly auriferous viz the government of tomsk and tenisek where low ridges similarly constructed to those on the eastern flank of the ural and like them trending from north to south appear as offsets from the great east and west chain of the altai which separates siberia from china and here it is curious to remark that a very few years ago this distant region did not afford a third part of the gold which the ural produced but by recent researches an augmentation so rapid and extraordinary has taken place that in eighteen forty three the eastern siberian tract yielded considerably upwards of two and a quarter million sterling raising the total gold produce of the russian empire to nearly three million sterling sir r i murchison combinations of the kaleidoscope the system of endless changes is one of the most astonishing properties of the kaleidoscope with a number of loose objects pieces of glass for example it is possible to produce any figure we have admired when it is once lost centuries may elapse before the same combination returns if the objects however are placed in the cell so as to have very little motion the same figure may be recalled and if actually fixed the same pattern will return in every evolution of the object plate a calculation of the number of forms is given upon the ordinary principles of combination namely that twenty-four pieces of glass may be combined one three nine one seven two four two eight 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 seven two five five two nine 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 four two five one two eight four nine three four o two two zero zero times an operation the performance of which would take hundreds of thousands of millions of years even upon the supposition that twenty combinations were effected every minute the means to the end from the abundance of clay upon its site london is as might be expected a brick-built city although the ingenuity of our age has cased miles of streets with cement to imitate stone this prevalence of clay is in great measure explanatory of the vastness of the metropolis it is nowhere better illustrated than in the fact of the five fields between pimlico and chelsea formerly a clayey swamp being now the site of some of the finest mansions in london 
a few years ago the clay retained so much water that no one would build there and the fields were the terror of foot passengers proceeding from westminster to chelsea after nightfall at length mr cubitt on examining the strata found them to consist of clay and gravel of inconsiderable depth the clay he removed and burned into bricks and by building upon the substratum of gravel he converted this spot from the most unhealthy to one of the most healthy to the immense advantage of the ground landlord and the whole metropolis this is one of the most perfect adaptations of the means to the end to be found in the records of the building art india rubber a century and a half since every generation is wisest in its own conceit and the present is continually overrated at the expense of the past who would have thought that india rubber cloaks were worn in south america upwards of a century since yet such forsooth is the plain fact of history and disinclined as we are to rob mr mackintosh of the merit of his adaptation the invention must be awarded to another age indeed it is almost one of the antiquities of the new world in a work entitled la monarchia indiana printed in madrid in seventeen twenty three we find a chapter devoted to very profitable trees in new spain from which there distill various liquors and rosins among them is described a tree called ucualid which the natives cut with a hatchet to obtain the white thick and adhesive milk this when coagulated they made into balls called uli which rebounded very high when struck to the ground and were used in various games it was also made into shoes and sandals the author continues quote, our people the spaniards make use of their uli to varnish their cloaks made of hempen cloth for wet weather which are good to resist water but not against the sun by whose heat and rays the uli is dissolved india rubber is not known in mexico at the present day by any other name than that of uli and the oiled silk covering of hats very generally worn throughout the country by travellers is always called uli balloon voyage from london to nassau on monday november seventh eighteen thirty six mr monk mason and mr robert holland accompanied mr green in his large balloon from london to weilburg in the grand duchy of nassau in germany an extent of five hundred british miles achieved in the short space of eighteen hours the route lay through a considerable portion of the five kingdoms of england france belgium prussia germany and the archduchy of nassau whilst a long succession of cities including london rochester canterbury dover calais castle ypres Coutray, Lille, Audenard, Art, and Brussels, with the renowned fields of Waterloo and Gnepe, Namur, Liège, Spa, Malmedy, Coblenz, and a whole host of intermediate villages were all brought within the compass of the aeronaut's horizon, their superior elevation and various aberrations enabling them to extend far beyond what might be expected from a hasty consideration of the line connecting the two extremities of the route the voyagers returned to london by steam and mr monk mason afterwards published an interesting narrative of the aeronautical voyage the appearance which the balloon exhibited previous to the ascent was very strange 
provisions calculated for a fortnight's consumption in case of emergency ballast to the amount of upwards of a ton in weight disposed in bags of different sizes duly registered and marked together with an unusual supply of cordage implements and other accessories to an aerial excursion occupied the bottom of the car while all around the hoop and elsewhere appended hung cloaks carpet-bags barrels of wood and copper a coffee-warmer by means of slaked lime barometers telescopes lamps wine and spirit flasks with many other articles designed to serve the purposes of a voyage to regions where once forgotten nothing could be supplied antiquity of refined sugar it appears from the accounts of the chamberlain of scotland published from the originals in the exchequer that in the year thirteen twenty nine loaves of sugar were sold in scotland at the price of one shilling nine and a half pence more than an ounce of standard silver per pound stowe's survey of london states sugar refining to have been commenced in england about fifteen forty four and upwards of four centuries since we find margaret paston writing to her husband from norwich thus quote, i pray that ye will vouchsafe to send me another sugar-loaf for my old one is done clearness of the sky at the cape of good hope an observer states that in forty-two successive days at the cape there were only three in which he could not see venus in broad daylight sir john herschel assures us that he has written a letter by the light of an eclipse of the moon under these circumstances the starry heavens presented a brilliance of which the inhabitants of the northern hemisphere can have no conception the line from orion to antinous being remarkably rich and brilliant and appearing as a continuous blaze of light with however a few patches of the sky destitute of stars introduction of the potato the history of the potato affords a strong illustration of the influence of authority for more than two centuries the use of this invaluable plant was vehemently opposed at last louis the fifteenth wore a bunch of its blossoms in the midst of his courtiers and the consumption of the root became universal in france faraday as a lecturer von raumer acutely observes quote, mr faraday is not only a man of profound chemical and physical science which all europe knows but a very remarkable lecturer he speaks with ease and freedom but not with a gossiping unequal tone alternately inaudible and bawling as some very learned professors do he delivers himself with clearness precision and ability moreover he speaks his language in a manner which confirmed me in a secret suspicion i had that a great number of englishmen speak it very badly why is it that french in the mouth of mademoiselle mars german in that of tieck and english in that of faraday seems a totally different language because they articulate what other people swallow or chew it is a shame that the power and harmony of simple speech i am not talking of eloquence but of vowels and consonants that the tones and inflections which god has given to the human voice should be so neglected and abused and those who think they do them full justice preachers generally give us only the long straw of pretended connoisseurs instead of the chopped straw of the dilettanti the railway system suggested 
a striking suggestion of the extension of railway communication into a system as connecting lines are now called will be found in sir richard phillips's morning's walk from london to kew published in eighteen thirteen on reaching the surrey iron railway in wandsworth sir richard records quote, i found renewed delight in witnessing at this place the economy of horse labour on the iron railway yet a heavy sigh escaped me as i thought of the inconceivable millions which have been spent about malta four or five of which might have been the means of extending double lines of iron railway from london to edinburgh glasgow holyhead milford falmouth yarmouth dover and portsmouth a reward of a single thousand would have supplied coaches and other vehicles of various degrees of speed with the best tackle for readily turning out and we might ere this have witnessed our mail coaches running at the rate of ten miles an hour drawn by a single horse or impelled fifteen miles an hour by blankensop's steam engine such would have been a legitimate motive for overstepping the income of a nation and the completion of so great and useful a work would have afforded rational ground for public triumph in general jubilees the writer of these penetrative remarks lived until eighteen forty so that he had the gratification of witnessing a triumph akin to his long-cherished hope lord brougham's blunders dr young's theory of light was treated with the most sovereign contempt by lord brougham in the earlier numbers of the edinburgh review and dr young died without reaping the honour of his discovery the theory is now recognized as true and m arago has formally vindicated dr young from the noble critics animadversions in a discourse delivered at the french institute in eighteen o nine when the first application was made to parliament on gas lighting the movers in the project were much opposed a committee of the house of commons was granted but the application terminated unsuccessfully and the testimony of mr Ackham to the practicability of gas lighting exposed him to the severe animadversions and ridicule of mr brougham end of part five